0: This is Power Lunch, an hour to talk lightning hockey, the NHL, and how you're coping with the coronavirus. Exclusively on Lightning Power Play via the iHeartRadio app. Center point headman, right to go Kudrop.
1: Score! trick! Kudrow!
0: For NHL players, they've either voted or they will be voting. They have until Friday to vote on the return to play plan and the CBA extension for Board of Governors, they will have a call tomorrow and presumably by the weekend, we should know if this thing has been ratified and we can proceed to phase three, which will begin on Monday with full training camps for the 24 teams that will be participating in the tournament scheduled to start in two hub cities on August 1st. Welcome to this Thursday edition of Power Lunch on Lightning Power Play. Dave Mishkin with you, Steve Versnick putting it all together. And our special guest for this hour is lightning beat reporter Brian Burns, who is a regular guest and contributor on Lightning Power Play, usually with Greg or Eric, not usually with me. So, Burns, I'm really excited to, to get a chance to talk to you on the air today.
1: Yeah, I mean, we do a lot of talking, whether or not it's at a, a morning skate or a practice or something like that, but not really on the air. So it'd be good to do this one, I guess, officially, you could say.
0: Well, I'm going to have you put on your reporter's cap first, and let's dive in to this very comprehensive document, which contains not only there are actually two documents, but the return to play and the CBA extension. And first off, when you read about the significant parts of the return to play, what struck you the most? Yeah,
1: you know, I guess a lot of it would be, you know, the personnel that's allowed to, to go with, uh, you know, that's going to be allowed to go with the to the hub cities, uh, limiting it to, to 52. Uh, from my end, having, you know, one of those people mandated by the NHL that, each team has to have a, a social media person or a content provider, uh, which I'm not going to be that person. I, won't <laughs> I was be gonna going ask to ask you the hub that. city, uh, but just that the NHL had that in there, you know, that each team had to have one of these people. I found that uh, pretty interesting and just the breakdown of what staff and coaches and trainers and whatnot would be allowed to go with the teams to the hub cities.
0: My biggest takeaway from the return to play document as a whole was that the NHL was not doing this 50% and crossing their fingers. They were not doing it 75% and loosening their fingers, but still keeping them crossed a little bit and not even going 95%. I mean, they went 100% into this fully committed at considerable expense with great detail to try and get this tournament up and running and completed. And at least from my standpoint, the league and the players association, cause they had to sign off on this, should be commended for putting together a protocol that is extensive enough to best they can. We can't look into the future. We don't know necessarily what is gonna happen over these next few months, but as much as they could right into a document, assurances that they could get this thing completed, they did that.
1: Yeah, I think if you look at you know just the number of times that these guys are going to be tested, I mean, it's daily, pretty much from the start of phase three all the way through to the hub city. If you're a player, if you're uh, you know an equipment manager, if you're someone that's going to be in that player access group that's going to have access to the players and be around them, uh, you're going to be tested daily. You're going to have to do the, the temperature checks where you you wake up and you check your temperature and then you check your temperature before you enter an arena or you enter the club's facility. Uh, it, the, the amount of, it, It's really pretty much if you look at what they were able to do in Phase 2 uh, and then even going into Phase 3, a lot of those same protocols are still in place. Like players or anybody going into the facility, you have to wear a mask going into the facility. You have to wear a mask leaving the facility. You have to wear your mask when you're inside the facility, when you're in the locker room. Those players are going to be uh, spaced apart and their stalls. are going to be six feet apart, so no more you know, guys sharing lockers right next to one another. Uh, really, the only time when they're not wearing a mask is when they're working out or, or when they're on the ice. So a lot of those same protocols that you saw in Phase 2 that were enacted, uh, they're keeping those right on through with Phase 3. And even in Phase 4, you look and it says, you know, guys they're advising players on how to ride the elevator not to press the button with their finger to use your knuckle or to use your elbow no talking in the elevators like they've they've got it very detailed to where they're trying to limit the amount of exposure between players uh, when they're not on the ice and if there is a case where where someone does develop symptoms uh, or there is a positive test that that they can deal with that appropriately and get that player away from that hub uh, and isolate them so that it doesn't contaminate the entire hub
0: well like and you were mentioning not only players but staff and officials and we got the list of the on ice officials for the two hub cities in terms of daily testing but i mean the league is is going to be doing daily testing on hotel staff and bus drivers and i mean that's an example to me of could the league have said you know what We're going to test everyone, but we don't really need to test the bus drivers (laughs) because the bus drivers are going to have limited exposure to the players. And that's kind of what I meant by going 100%. Any possible scenario that could derail this thing, to the extent that the league could write it into the document, they did that.
1: Yeah, and you look at, you know, throughout this whole process when they were talking about what are the hub cities going to be, Uh, Las Vegas was the one constant and then it was just rotating it seemed between first it was you know it was going to be LA and then it was uh, there was talk of Vancouver and then maybe Edmonton had an outside chance and then it was Toronto but it seemed Las Vegas was always that one constant and then like right up until the last week or so uh, you started hearing reports about uh, and and Vegas hotel workers casino workers people that were inside these hotels where there were uh, these flare-ups of, of cases of, of coronavirus. Uh, and I think that's why you saw the NHL go away from, from Las Vegas as one of those hub cities, because there was a lot of stuff there that was going to be really hard for them to control. Uh, and I think they felt like they'd have a better chance of doing that in Edmonton and Toronto as opposed to Las Vegas, where you're dealing with a lot more people. Uh, and like you said, a lot more of those, you know, the bus drivers or casino workers or people, Uh, That You might not have to, especially with casinos, you wouldn't really have to deal with that in Edmonton. There's a lot more chances for for players to come into contact with people, uh, with just more people in general if you're in Las Vegas. So uh, like you said, I I agree with you. I think they've done a really good job of being extremely thorough with this and just trying to give themselves every opportunity possible uh, to crown a Stanley Cup champion this season.
0: The part that they could not write into the document is ensuring that players don't leave the bubble because ultimately that's the player's choice. Now, they did put in a clause that details severe penalties for not only any player that leaves the bubble without a legitimate excuse and for the team for which that player plays, which could include fines and loss of draft picks so they put that in the document but ultimately it's up to each individual player and let's be frank about this bernsey it is not going to be the easiest thing in the world for these players now they're going to be playing they're going to be with their teammates they're going to have amenities provided for them within the bubble but they can't just walk outside if they want right it has to be a sanctioned activity and it is very possible that some of these guys are going to go a little stir crazy. So they're going to have to fight that urge and understand that there's something bigger at, at play here, a chance to, to not only compete to win the Stanley Cup, but also to, to keep your teammates' chances of winning a Stanley Cup alive. Given the culture of the hockey locker room, where so much of this is, I'm not only playing for myself, but I'm playing for my buddy, I'm playing for my teammates. I'm playing for my organization. Do you think that that would not be as much of a concern in hockey as, say, in some other sports? And we've seen other sports that have had players test positive. And Steve was telling me about, you know, Dallas and the MLS had a bunch of players, you know, got infected and they they weren't able to compete in the MLS tournament. Do you think given the culture within – the hockey circle that the players will take that responsibility and not jeopardize either their team's chances or even the league's window here to get this tournament completed?
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, would you want to be that one guy that, that they right. find out that went outside the bubble and then infected, you know, either your teammates or other people within the bubble and kind of, blew up this whole thing. I don't think, you know, look at Rudy Gobert from the NBA. He's, he's been looked at as, uh, you know, enemy number one for what kind of gone down with coronavirus because he was, you know, the, the famous one that, uh, that had it before the game. And then the the game was stopped right as they were about to tip off. And, uh, was found out that he had tested positive and just a couple days before he had been kind of mocking the whole situation when he was doing his media interview where he touched each microphone and recorder that was on a table in front of him just to kind of make a point like I'm not taking this seriously. Uh, and then two days later, he effectively got the NBA shut down and that kind of precipitated, you know, the shutdown of every other major sport. Uh, in the United States, I think, you know, the next day everybody else was on pause as well and things were just being canceled left and right. And that guy, you know, has been looked at pretty unfavorably since that's happened because he was kind of the uh, the poster child for coronavirus, I guess you could say, within sports. So I don't think anybody in the NHL, especially with how team-oriented these guys are, it's not, uh, you know, you have your individual's, the 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 get a lot of command get a lot of attention and rightfully so but it really is more of a a team sport where you know your fourth line can be just as effective uh, as your first line in an important game Uh, so and I feel like that team aspect I don't think any of these guys want to be that that one guy that that's going to kind of blow it up for everybody else by by making that mistake and kind of ruining everybody's chances
0: we've had a variety of guests on this week and i've asked everybody who's come on their opinion on this from the point that the document gets ratified players will have up to three days if they're on one of these 24 teams that will be competing players will have up to three days to opt out if they choose and this is presuming they're passing the pre-participation exam which is another matter because they could be deemed unfit to play if they have a a serious underlying condition. And that would be the doctor's call. That would be out of the players' hands. But for the players who get through that exam, which I presume would be the vast majority of players, if not all the players, they will have an opportunity to opt out if they choose. What do you think that number is going to look like?
1: <laughs> uh Wow. That's- well, I'll just
0: I'll just preface this by saying, like Ken Campbell wrote a column in the Hockey News. He thinks the number is going to be zero. <laughs> Steve and, and Greg were were along the same lines, and Eric Erlinson was kind of like, you know what? I wouldn't be surprised if some players opted out. I mean, we're not talking about fifty percent, but I'm just wondering if you think it's going to be like zero or one, or high single digits, into maybe double digits.
1: I would say zero to five. Like initially, my thinking would be zero. If we're talking about the lightning itself, I don't see anybody on the team opting out, especially with the opportunity that these guys have and the uh, the strong team that they have and their chances of winning a Stanley Cup. If you're, you know, maybe if you're a guy on a team that just kind of squeezed into the playoffs just based on them going to a twenty four team format, and and you have serious reservations, I could see maybe a guy. Uh, opting out and not wanting to risk it, but again, I think we're talking about. And I think I read somewhere, uh, I forget who reported it, but but someone uh, I saw a tweet about. Uh, there were players with a lot of reservations, but hockey is kind of that one sport where everybody goes along with the flow. So if the majority are going along and are going to go into it, then then everybody kind of comes along, and uh, I really think that's going to be the case here. Whereas maybe you know, in basketball and baseball, we're seeing more players kind of coming out and questioning whether or not it, it's right for them uh, with regards to their own safety, with regards to safety of their family members. Uh, but hockey hasn't really seemed to, to, to be that way so far. We haven't really heard of players you know, coming out and saying, uh, at least publicly, that they have reservations about coming back. So uh, I'm more on the end of, of zero to, to maybe like five at the most. But I really don't see it for any of these teams that have a legitimate shot of winning a Stanley Cup. Uh, I feel like everybody on those teams is going to be pretty engaged and, and wants to be a part of that because they feel like they have a good opportunity uh, you know, to crown themselves as a champion at the end of the season.
0: Yeah, to the extent that we heard some reservations from players, it seemed like it was more about we don't have all of the details of the document. And this is before the document was released. So I wonder if a lot of those concerns were alleviated when they got the information.
1: Well, and I think the NHL, whether or not they were transparent with the players, I know you know, in talking to Alex Kalorn, he, he thought that the NHL was doing a good job of being transparent, you know, with the NHLPA. But maybe that information wasn't trickling down to, to every player with a, within a team. But now that they've had the document, they can see exactly what's going on. Uh, like you said earlier, how uh, extensive some of these protocols are, how how diligent they're being with uh trying to maintain a a, a a safe environment within the hub cities and, you know, even with transportation to and from the arena. And it seems like they've thought about pretty much everything within these return to play protocols. Uh, I think that should alleviate a lot of these fears that maybe some of the, uh, some of the players were having
0: previously. I know you don't have the answer to this question or scenario, but it's interesting to think about we're hearing for some professional sports teams that are doing regular testing, that there has been a delay in getting the result of the test, which has slowed things. It's interesting that in phase three, so the training camp phase that's gonna start on Monday, that players test negative within 24 hours, of being tested. So in other words, they get a test within 24 hours, they have to learn that they test negative. If they've not gotten the test result back though, they have to wait until they actually get the result, which is very interesting. It's presuming that they can turn this around. I think everyone is presuming that they're gonna be able to turn this around within a day and that it would be no problem. But what if, like what if, Players fine. They just haven't gotten a test result back yet. And you have a handful of players not only on the lightning but throughout the league, depending on how they're using the tests or which testing company they're using, that training camp may be affected by the speed with which these results come back.
1: Yeah, and you worry or you wonder about, you know, some of these areas like Tampa or Florida where, you know, you you've seen these large spikes in the last two to three weeks or Arizona or uh, Dallas and Texas, uh, is it going to be harder to get results back? Because you're having a lot of people tested. You're having a lot of uh, people that are showing COVID symptoms and wanting to get tested. So uh, with these areas that are seeing these spikes and you're seeing a lot more testing there now, is that going to affect the turnaround time that the players are uh, able to get their, their results back and, you know, you would think that the NHL probably has a pretty good plan in place for for getting these results back quickly. But, you know, and what cost is that to the rest of the population here? Do you want to uh, not give someone who, who's showing symptoms out in the general populace, you know, have their test results delayed because the NHL players need to have their test results back so they can get into a training camp? Uh, you got to kind of see where your priorities are here and make sure that the general population is able to get their testing and their results uh, as quickly as anybody in the NHL would be able to. So that would be my concern there from from a, a results standpoint, uh, you know, getting it back in a timely fashion. Some of these areas that are experiencing huge spikes, are they going to have increased time to get their tests yeah. back uh, because they're doing more tests, because you have more people that are going out with symptoms and wanting to find out if they have coronavirus?
0: Now, some of the tests are, are – specifically called rapid result tests and i believe those are the tests that the nhl will be using in the hub cities now, and that the, the nasal bubble, swab
1: i i'm, I'm not like oh they have so many different you know test yeah. names i'm not really sure which test you know <laughs> what it actually entails
0: well the document that i read for phase four specifically referenced the rapid turnaround test so i think that they want to make sure that they get results quickly and they're going to be testing high volume. I mean, you're talking about 52 times 12 at the start in each hub city, not to mention all the other people, right? The, the on ice officials yeah. and and the staff, both in the arena and the hotel, the bus drivers, like we talked about. So I think that that is certainly a priority for the league to make sure that they have a test that they can turn around quickly. But when we're talking about phase three, and like you made a good point. You have twenty-four teams in twenty-four cities that are all handling this. Presumably, maybe with with some help from the league, but they're they're handling it on their own. Maybe with the league helping facilitate, but it's not under one roof. So, hopefully, it doesn't come to pass. You would hate to see a player who's healthy and and negative have to sit out a day because the test result didn't come back quickly. I also thought it was interesting, Bernsey, some of the language for any player that does test positive, and this would be in phase four, and I apologize to the listeners, I, I misspoke a little bit earlier in the week before I had actually seen the verbiage in the document myself. I was kind of reading bullet point notes from from writers, and I may have misspoken. But essentially it comes down to this if you are in a hub city and you test positive and you're asymptomatic so you have no symptoms they give you a second test but if that test also comes back positive you are isolating in your hotel room for either 10 days or until you have two negative tests 24 hours apart so i guess theoretically you could you could have a negative test within five days And then your your self-isolation would be shorter but you're still talking about a period of isolation even if you have no symptoms and then once you come out of isolation with those two negative tests you go through some other tests that are that are cardiac related tests and until you are given the green light you cannot work out so you are basically grounded not only separated from your team and your teammates, but you can't work out at all. And pending those test results, you're looking at 14 days. I think that it's going to be 14 days. You may not be quarantined for 14 days, but unless they can get those test results turned around on on like the echocardiogram type of test, not the COVID test, you're looking at a player not having an opportunity to work out. So not only would that player be coming back disadvantaged because he's had to sit out for let's say a week and a half to two weeks, but also having lost his conditioning. So it really behooves not only the league and teams, but also individual players to try and avoid getting this for obvious reasons, but not the least of which, even if you feel fine, you're grounded. And and you're not going to be able to do much of anything until you're cleared.
1: Yeah. And we've seen with guys that, that, suffer uh, an injury, you know, during the regular, whether it's upper body, lower body injury, you know, they're still able to work out. They're still able to, you know, isolate whatever that, that injury is and work out other uh, parts of their body or they're, they're keeping their cardio up. They're keeping uh, their physical fitness up to, to a certain ability, uh, regardless of whether, whatever that injury is. So it's almost as if, 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 you know you're playing you, you the playoffs have started whether it's the uh whether it's the round robin whether it's the qualifying round it almost seems like if if competition has started and you get covid and whether you have symptoms or not and you get self isolated it's it's pretty much taken you out of the whole tournament i mean you might be able to get back in and play you know get back up to your level of play you know 2 weeks later but you know, your team might not be in the, the competition at that point anymore. It might be too late at that point. So uh, it's almost as if if you get COVID while you're in this competition, you're pretty much done. You're, you're not going to be able to get back and be as effective as, as you would want to be because you're not getting that conditioning. Like you said, you're not able to work out and it's going to take guys time, just like we've seen with with this pause. It's going to take guys time to get. Uh, they're skating back. It's going to take them a little bit of time to get their fitness back. Hopefully, you know, they've been working out during the pause, but it doesn't replicate you know, what it's like to be on the ice and playing in, a, uh, in an NHL hockey game. So it's just, it's just going to be really interesting to see what happens. And we hope nobody gets it uh, while, you know, we're in this hub city situation. Uh, But if someone does, it's going to be really interesting to see just what happens to that person, what happens to that team, whether they're able to come back and play at a high level. There's just so many unknowns right now, and uh, it's going to be probably the most interesting Stanley Cup playoffs we've ever seen.
0: And I think that's why the league is really trying to put in place these protocols to keep the bubble tight best they can. And I didn't even mention, if a player tests positive with symptoms, that's even more severe in terms of the time that that player is going to be off because the symptoms have to go away and then only after symptoms go away and a 72-hour window after that can the player be potentially released from a quarantine but he still needs the two negative tests so there are definite incentives to stay healthy for sure we're going to take a break here in a couple of minutes, and we're going to talk more Lightning-specific stuff on the other side. But before we take the break, Bernsey, I want to just get your thoughts on the other part of the agreement, which is the CBA extension. And it, it's really incredible when you think about how the NHL and the NHLPA, who have had a very rocky history over the last two and a half decades with three separate work stoppages, one of which cost an entire season, that they were able to, in the middle of a pandemic, not only put together a plan to come back and play this year, but also get an extension on the CBA for an additional four years, which makes it six years starting next season, whenever next season does begin. And I think you need to tip tip your cap to the league and the players association for getting this done. We can talk all we want about, well, you know what? They needed to do it because the the revenues were out of whack and, and to make the revenues work, they needed an extension. I mean, they, they still got the deal done, which when you look around pro sports, I mean, certainly other leagues have had some issues, baseball specifically. I think it's just quite incredible that the league was able to pull this off incredible in a good way and, and tip your cap to them. Right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I just, you know, we were, we were just talking about just how extensive the, the protocols and the return to play, uh, how, how extensive and how detailed that plan was. And for them to be able to put that together and on top of that, put the CBA together that gives, you know, labor peace for another, what, five, six seasons, uh, yeah, like you said, I echo that. I think it's pretty incredible. Uh, and we get Olympic hockey potentially back, too, yep. which is a big deal. So uh, kudos all around. I think the NHL, out of any league, has probably handled this the best of the of the major sports in the U.S. Uh, just as far as, you know, kind of being transparent at the beginning and letting everybody know what their thoughts were as far as a return to play. Not locking down any dates, but giving... Uh, kind of generalities as far as this is when we think we'll be able to to move to a phase two or this is when we think we'll be able to move to a training camp scenario. Uh, I think the NHL has done you know a remarkable job throughout this whole process uh, of keeping the fans informed and uh, of coming to an agreement where we have the potential to have uh, Stanley Cup playoff hockey here in a couple of weeks, and to have labor peace for a number of seasons to come. I think it's been a, a really good job at the NHL, and I think Gary Bettman deserves a lot of credit for for you know what he's been able to do and uh, what his team has been able to put together.
0: We are going to come back on the other side, talk a little lightning hockey, and also Brian Burns hockey. What <laughs> Burns he's going to be doing when play resumes. Remotely, presumably. Not presumably, he told us he's not making the trip, but uh, he'll certainly be very busy uh, covering the team back here in Tampa. Power Lunch continues right after this on Lightning Power Play. An hour of hockey talk to get you through social distancing. This is Power Lunch on Lightning Power Play. Power Play. Continuing with Lightning, beat reporter Brian Burns. Let's shift our attention, Burnsy, to the Lightning, and you guys were just sharing with me a tweet that came through from John Shannon that we may get the return to play scheduling here in the next 24 hours, but we know the Lightning will be involved in the round robin part of the tournament in the first week. So they will play one game each against Boston, Philadelphia, and Washington, and then based on... The records of those four teams, after the round robin is done, they will be seeded. If there is a tie, then they go to regular season points as the tiebreaker, and they'll be seeded one through four, and the highest seed, the one seed, would get the lowest remaining seed from the play-in rounds, and the lowest seed out of the round robin will get the highest play-in survivor seed which if Pittsburgh beats Montreal, Pittsburgh is the five seed. So Pittsburgh would get the four seed. Try and spell it out for you best I can. So I'm just curious about how the Lightning may want to handle this round robin and get your thoughts on it. So I guess there are two schools of thought here. One is that we kind of know what we want our lineup to be heading into game one – of the playoffs for us so after the round robin and therefore given this long layoff we want to play that lineup if not all three games as close to all three games as we can assuming no injuries force us to change our lineup and the other school of thought might be you know what we have a lot of guys that we may need if we're going to have a deep playoff run And we're going to use the round robin games to try and get as many different players in so they can dip their toe in the pool and get some game action under their belt before the playoffs begin. There will also be one exhibition game prior to the round robin starting. So I'm curious, like, how do you see that playing out specifically for the Lightning?
1: I would tend to lean more towards option A that, that you described there. I think, you know, outside of the goaltenders, I, I feel like they'll want to get McElhaney one of those games uh, just to make sure he's fresh. Uh, but with their, with their lines, with their defensive pairings, I think they're going to want to let those guys get that chemistry back, get that feel back of playing together with one another Uh, so they'll be ready to go once they do hit the, uh, you know, the, the best of 16 round of, of the, uh, of the NHL playoff season. So, you know, like when you look at guys that haven't played a whole lot, you are talking about like your Luke shins, your guys that are going to be, you know, on the bench, uh, but you might need them if somebody gets injured. Well, that that's kind of how they were during the regular season. They weren't just kind of inserted into the lineup, uh, just to get them games. Uh, it was more of a situation where if someone went down with an injury, then you might see a Luke Shin come in. Uh, he's the one that, that comes to my mind uh, for for some reason immediately, as far as like a backup, a guy that's not going to be in a regular lineup, but could see some time uh, injury wise. So I think they're going to want to see, you know, what their lines look like. I think they're going to want to get their defensive pairing set. I think they have an idea, obviously what those are, but, you know, it's been so long since these guys have played with one another. I think they're going to need those three games uh, to, to get that chemistry back and just to get that feel of what it's like to, to play with one another again. Uh, so I think the lineup's going to be pretty similar uh, through those three round robin games, the lineup that they're going to want to use once they get into the first round of the playoffs. So maybe the exhibition game is a good opportunity where you get uh, some of the guys that, that might not be the regulars in your lineup a little bit more time so they can get their legs under them. They can get the feel of what it's like again to play in an NHL game. But I think once the round robin starts, I think the lightning are going to have a set lineup and they're going to want to use that lineup throughout. Uh, and then if someone does get injured, then they're just relying on one of their, their backups to be able to come in and, and kind of do their job. Their job is to, to keep themselves ready uh, and then when they're called upon to be able to come in and, and play at a high level and, and and make sure that that the team's not missing a beat. So that's kind of how I see them approaching this round-robin scenario.
0: I know Alex Kalorn had expressed some concern with the format when the format came up for a vote and the Lightning were one of two teams to vote no on the format, not because they didn't want to come back and play, but as Kalorn stated it, the Lightning weren't crazy about The notion of playing their first playoff game against a team that had already been through a playoff series successfully so they would have been more battle tested and that's the way it's going to be so they're just going to have to deal with that but there's no question that the round robin teams are going to have much different pressure on them than the eight teams that are in the play-in series in the Eastern Conference I'm talking about of those 12 teams because they will not be facing elimination when they play their round-robin games. Right. But the seeding will be up for grabs and the potential to get a higher seed, and I guess you could make the argument a more favorable first-round matchup as a result of a higher seed if you do well. That is out there as a carrot. And also what you talked about, which is using those games to get into a flow, which those other teams in the play-in series, like they want to get into a flow, but they need to win. Like they're getting dropped in the deep end of the pool and they're going to have to figure out a way to to win three games out of five or else their season is over. Do you think there will be a, a lot of emphasis placed? And again, we'll use the Lightning as an example more than the other three round robin teams a big emphasis placed on winning as many games in the round robin for seeding or is it more about just using those games to get ready for your first playoff series I mean,
1: sure, every time they go out on the ice, they're going to want to win, right? I mean, that's just kind of the nature of how these guys are wired. The Any kind of competition they're in, they're going to want to win it, whether it's you know playing a game of tiddlywinks out in the – or <laughs> yeah. cornhole out at, the, at Sparkman Wharf for a, a charity event or whether it's an NHL game. But you know, I think if you lose, maybe there's not that sense of, of doom and dread that you would see after a, a normal game because you realize, hey, in the grand scheme of things uh, – This isn't going to affect us that much. Yes, it's going to affect our seeding, and yeah, we might have to play our tougher opponent in the first round as a result. But, you know, if you you want to be a Stanley Cup champion, you're going to have to beat the best teams anyway. So does it really matter if you have to play them in the first round uh, or the second or the third round? Uh, so I think there is going to be, obviously they're going to want to win, but I think the, the emphasis, you know at least from a team like the Lightnings perspective, is, is like you said, like getting into that flow, trying to replicate that feeling of how you were playing when you went on that stretch where you went 23, 2 and one from what was it, December 23rd up until you know mid-February when they had that classic win uh, overtime win in Colorado. Like trying to get the feel of how they were playing. Uh, because not only were they winning games during that stretch, but they were playing so well defensively as far as the, the the MO, at least under Cooper this year is, is, you know, we're trying to hold teams to two goals or less. And if you look at that stretch, uh, pretty much every one of those games, they held their opponent to two goals or less. So they were, they were buying in defensively, uh, maybe the offense wasn't as high powered as it was last season when they set so many records, but it was doing what it needed to do. And they were playing so well within their responsibilities defensively. uh, That was able to translate through all aspects of the game. And they were able to, to compile this incredible record. So I think these round robin games are more about, let's try to find that way we were playing. Let's try to get back to that style of play as much as we can. Before we hit this this uh, first round playoff, and we're playing a team that that was in a do or die situation, and is going to be uh, maybe a little bit hungry, kind of similar to what we saw last season, where you know Columbus throughout the last month of the regular season was fighting for its playoff life, where every game meant something to them, uh, and then you look at the Lightning, every game over the last month of the regular season really didn't mean anything other than well, you know, we're trying to to get to sixty two wins, or we're trying to to break the NHL wins record. It was more just for, uh, it wasn't really for seeding or any. Everything had already been wrapped up. It was more just for, for records purposes and kind of asserting themselves as one of these all-time teams. And then they hit the playoffs and uh, Columbus had been that battle-tested team over the last month. The Lightning weren't, and we all know what the result of that was. So uh, I think it's going to be about getting up to speed, uh, about trying to replicate how they were playing during that incredible run that they went on Uh, over the second half of the regular season uh, and and hoping that they can kind of mitigate that somewhat uh, of their opponent having been in a do-or-die situation in these best-of-five scenarios.
0: Some of their best hockey during that stretch was played before they started getting injuries, and they still played well after they got injuries. McDonough got hurt in January, Ruda got hurt in early February, and of course they were still (laughs) winning even without those guys as as other players stepped in. Yeah. But the group of six defensemen that did a lot of the heavy lifting when they were really playing at their peak was Hedman Ruda, McDonough Chernak, Sergachev, and Schattenkirk. Right. And then you've also got Colburn and you've got Shen, who you mentioned, and then Bogosian came in at the trade deadline and when he arrived Ruda was still out and Bogosian slotted in during a lot of the time that that he was in the lineup since arriving with the Lightning with Hedman and then of course we may have another defenseman potentially on the Black Aces as they're called the player who's been in Syracuse throughout the year and and coming up as a potential reinforcement do you think not having seen training camp yet and seeing how they're working the rotations. Do you think it's likely that they're going to go back to that group of six that was their group of six for the bulk of the season? And really when they clicked in playing that type of defensive hockey that, that you just referenced as the group that they want to start the playoffs with.
1: Yeah, I I think so. And I, you know, I think you could maybe make a case for Braden Coburn and, He's kind of legendary for the way he takes care of himself for the physical uh, for for his physique and the way he uh, trains in the off season. I feel like this pause is probably other than some of the injured guys, I feel like this pause probably has done him really well just because it's allowed him to to maybe get like a second wind here. and and you know that he's training really hard during this pause to to get into peak physical condition once they are able to play again Uh, so maybe there's an opportunity there to bring Coburn in but I I just think that that Ruta works so well with Hedman and allows Hedman to be Victor Hedman that I don't know that they want to upset that Uh, and then you look at really where everything all the other pairs really seem to stem from you know the one constant being McDonough-Chernak and they just really like what that pair does uh, as far as like a defensive shutdown pair, that's that's who's going over the boards whenever you need to stop the other team. Uh, whenever, you know, their best line is on the ice, you want those guys out there. And everything else just kind of stems from that. I, you know, Sergachev and Coburn have played very well in the past. Uh, maybe there's an opportunity for Coburn to make a case for himself there. But uh, I really think, you know, what Shattenkirk and Sergachev were able to do together, the growth that we saw uh, in Sergachev throughout the year, and how he gained uh, confidence, really, you know, week by week, you know, his confidence just blossomed. Really, with him playing a more physical game and being comfortable in that game, and then the way that that Shattenkirk was able to play off of that, I just really feel like those pairs were what was working for the Lightning. Uh, and now that everybody's healthy, you would assume, you know, Ruta's back to hundred percent. McDonough uh, is back to hundred percent. I know Hedman was dealing with something there towards the end before the pause. So so everybody should be 100% now. And I think if, if all guys being equal, I think you just go back you know, to those pairs. You go back to how those six were, were inserted into the lineup. Uh, and then maybe if something happens where you're not happy with what you see, then maybe you see a Braden Coburn come in. Uh, And whether that means he comes in and slots in with Sergachev, or if maybe you move Sergachev up with Hedman and see what that looks like, or maybe you move Shattenkirk up with Hedman. Uh, But I think you give those six that you mentioned, I think you give them the first crack at this and let them try to replicate what they were able to do during that incredible run that they had.
0: You could always throw in a seventh defenseman, too, which has been something John Cooper has done during his time as head coach, although we saw less of it this year.
1: Yeah, more something I remember my first season, that 2014-15 Cup run, it was pretty much a regularity during that playoff season. And it seemed like since then, he's kind of gotten away from that more and more with each playoff run.
0: The other part of this that is going to be interesting to watch is, and we'll use Coleman and Goodrow as two examples, guys who came in at the deadline, needed to acclimate quickly in what was sizing up to be the stretch run in the regular season, little did we know that the season would get pause. Both those guys and Bogosian as well are now gonna have essentially a full training camp. I mean, what are we looking at? About 13 days, 12, 13 days in Tampa, and then another four to five days in the hub city. How much will that help those guys in terms of taking a step back, <laughs> they've had the pause, They're coming in and they're kind of going back to bases, uh, basics, not just them, but the team as a whole going back to basics about relearning and reemphasizing system play.
1: Yeah, I kind of go back and forth with this because I do agree, you know, kind of taking a step back, maybe not being thrust in, you know, to the pressure of playing in an NHL game and you get a chance to learn the systems a little bit more, maybe even just get to know your teammates a little better. Uh, than you were able to I think maybe for Coleman it'll have more of an effect in that regard that you know it seemed like maybe he was fighting it a little bit when he was playing that he had been you know a pretty good goal scorer with New Jersey and he was having trouble finding the net with the Lightning and uh, maybe he wasn't playing up to as well as he wanted to play so I think for him potentially being able to take that step back pause a little bit reset uh, learn the systems a little bit better and then kind of get energized for, for this, you know, this, this run that we're about to go on now, I think for him more than anybody, it'll be helpful. But I, I I'm also a believer that, you know, being thrust into those situations and, and actually playing and learning how this team plays by playing in games and playing in big games and playing in games that are meaningful. Uh, I think that can have a pretty good effect too. I think, uh, we saw a little bit of that with Barclay Goodrow in that Boston game where yeah, uh, you didn't know exactly what you had with him, but then you saw that physical presence that he was able to be in that game up at, at, at TD Garden and uh, how really it was him that, that kind of instigated everything, or not instigated, but was just kind of at the center of everything that started, what happened you know, towards the end of the second period, and uh and going into the third and just what a physical presence that he could be for this team and a different dynamic that that they haven't had as lot as much of you know over the past couple of seasons so uh for him i think you know playing in these games and being a part of the team and and being in the nhl schedule i think maybe would be more beneficial uh so i i i guess it, it depends on the player it, and that's just me speculating. I mean, maybe Blake Coleman's like, no, I'd be much better going out and just playing games with these guys and working my way out of it than going into a training camp. But just from a an outside observer perspective, I, I feel like, you know, Goodrow was probably starting to feel his way into the team and, and certainly endeared himself to his teammates with that, that game in Boston. And, and probably would like to play just more of those games and, and be more, you know, into it every day, as opposed to maybe Coleman could take a step back and, Uh, you know, acclimate himself through more of a training camp situation. So, yeah, I I think you can look at it both ways. I I don't know that it's going to really benefit, you know, one team or anybody more than the other going into the training camp rather than, you know, actually playing the games.
0: Brian Burns joining us on this Thursday Power Lunch here on Lightning Power Play. So, for you, I didn't know this for a fact until you said it, the top of the show but you are not going to be the content person going to toronto with the lightning to cover the team so you will be covering the team from a distance which you don't make every trip during the regular season so it's not like you've never done it before but how tough do you expect this to be to cover a tournament from tampa when the tournament is taking place in toronto
1: yeah. Like you said, I've done this before, you know, I'm probably on 30% of the road trips that the team goes on. So most of the time when the team's away, I'm, you know, I'm tweeting from home, I'm covering the game from home, watching the, the broadcast, listening to you uh, on the radio or, or watching. Uh, you know, I try to watch on TV, but sometimes the the cable goes out. So I have to turn on the radio and listen to, uh, uh, to you and Kaylee. So, um, It's not going to be difficult in that regard. Uh, Like, it'll be something that I'm used to. The the difficult thing for me is, uh, you know, it's like I also do the game notes for the team. I also send out post-game notes to all of the media after the game is over. So if we're talking about a a bunch of back-to-backs, you know, after a game's over, I'm going to send out post-game notes from the the just-completed game to all of our media so they can have that information and, and do with it what they will. Then I'm going to be you know writing a, a game recap my three things from from the game that's just been completed that'll go up on Tampa Bay lightning.com then i'm gonna have to get you know the game notes ready uh for the next game which could potentially be in less than 24 hours uh and you know i i do that on the on back-to-back situations during the regular season but you know there's not there's i, I think we had what 13 or 14 of them this year mm-hmm. and and they're they're spaced out pretty well, but if you're talking about a situation where it's back to back and then maybe a day or two off and then another back to back, like that's going to be pretty difficult for me, just as far as after that first game, all of the responsibilities I have to do getting ready for the next day's game. So uh, that's really the only part that causes me a little bit of trepidation, where I'm like, am I going to be able? You know, am I going to be up until like four in the morning getting everything ready for for the next day's game? And then am I am I going to be fresh enough? the following day to, to be able to cover that game and be coherent in whatever I'm saying, am I going to get enough sleep to be coherent, uh, to, to be able to, to report on that game. Uh, but otherwise everything's pretty much going to be the same. And, you know, if you look at what media, what access, uh, media outside the clubs is going to be allowed, you know, there's really no advantage to being at the game, uh, other than you kind of get to see from a firsthand perspective what it's like to watch a game with with no fans in the stands or that would be the only reason I would want to be in one of these hub cities is just to kind of see what that's like to see what how this whole scenario is going to play out. But as far as access, you're not going to be allowed in the locker rooms. You're not going to be allowed to get guys one on one, everything, every. Uh, interview is going to be done over a Zoom call that whether you're in Toronto or you're in Edmonton or I'm sitting in my home in St. Petersburg, I'm going to have the same access as everybody else. So it really makes no sense to even send me to one of these hub cities because then you you have to figure in the cost of, of housing me, putting me up in a hotel room, uh, of food and all of that stuff, transportation. So uh, from the organization standpoint, it's much you know more advantageous to have me here at home when i can do the same job as i would be able to do at one of these hub cities
0: i don't know if this is going to put your mind at ease i guess i was under the assumption maybe it's the wrong assumption i guess we're going to find out if if this schedule release happens in the next 24 hours like we were talking about but i was operating under the assumption that at least at the start of the tournament it was gonna mostly be every other day for teams. Now the round robin teams, there will be a couple of teams that will have to play back to back, but like Steve and I were figuring that the round robin games might be the first game of the day because you know that you're not gonna have multiple overtimes with the round robin games because they'll be played, they won't count like regular season games, but they will be played like regular season games and that you'll have a five minute overtime and then a shootout. And then once you get into a playoff series, I guess you could have some back-to-backs when you have fewer teams. But you're going to have the same two teams from one day to the next. So I hope for your sake that if there are back-to-backs for the Lightning and it happens early that they have the noon game. So you won't have to stay up until 4 in the morning to get ready for for a game the next day. Uh, You have kept yourself busy, though, during the last four months now. And maybe getting a chance to write some features that under normal circumstances you would not have otherwise written. What have been some of the favorite things that you've gotten a chance to do during the pause?
1: Yeah, you know, just with the time crunch when you're in the season, everything is, is so regimented. You don't have a lot of time for some of these kind of outside the box story ideas. Um, but... I remember one of my favorites was just kind of going back into the arena. Uh, it was probably maybe two months after the pause had happened. And I remember I was talking to Brian Breesman, and he was just kind of saying, like, it was he had been in the arena a couple days prior, and he was just talking about how just kind of eerie it was that you go into the media room and the, the game notes for the game against the Flyers that was supposed to be played that night on March 12th were still you know, sitting on the table there and you go into the locker room and like the players, uh, like the family list is up, you know, for that game that night is still up in the, in the locker room. And just, there were just these different kind of reminders, I guess, throughout the arena, the morning skate show, uh, table, you know, console was still set up. Like they were going to have a morning skate show for like they would normally would for a game at Emily arena. So That was one of my favorites was just kind of going back to the arena a couple months after everything uh, had paused and just kind of looking and and seeing like all of these reminders that, you know, we were planning on playing a game that night and we had every intention of the the lightning facing off against the, the Philadelphia Flyers on March 12th. And then this pause happened and it was just like everybody left the arena and everything was just kind of left there the way it was. So that was one of my favorite stories that I wrote, mainly because it got me out of the house for a little bit and I got to go yeah. to the arena and just kind of be back in what felt like a normal work scenario for, for an hour or two. Uh, but for some reason, that story kind of resonated with people. I got a lot of like really good comments on that one and even some different media people. Like I remember Jen Epstein from Fox 13 had retweeted the story and left a really like nice note about it, how it really took her back to that day and just kind of resonated with people uh i guess who had been stuck in their house and you know how everybody had been feeling like we've just all been kind of on pause here wondering what the next step is here uh so that was one of my favorites i also did one where uh you know when actually when i went into the arena that day to do that story i had you know susan danelic who's just a, a staff member uh kind of like i am just you know on the business side of things was there taking people's temperatures as they come in. And I found that, you know, kind of interesting. Uh, I didn't expect to see her there doing that. And then they explained to me that uh, they weren't having part-timers. You know, usually during the, uh, a normal season, they have a lot of part-time security staff, but they weren't able to, to work. So they were asking uh, some of the more business side uh People to to man, you know, take a an eight hour shift in the security command. So I thought yeah, that might be actually kind of interesting to see what it's like to to work an eight hour shift inside the security command for an arena that you know that there's really nobody there. There's no event being hosted there. Like, what do you do for eight hours guarding an arena where nobody's around? So uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. Just going around with Daryl Niles, we did. Uh, you know, they do a, a few security checks each day around the perimeter of the arena. So just going around with him and seeing like the different things that they check, making sure, you know, all the doors are locked and everything looks how it's supposed to look and nothing really seems out of place. And uh, that was something. Yeah. You know, during the, the regular season, I would never have an eight hour window where I'd be able to go in and work a security shift and then write about it because, there's just, <laughs> right. you know, games are coming left and right. There's just no time to do anything like that. So You know, that's kind of, you know, the pause hasn't been good from a standpoint of, you know, obviously we want to see this season. We wanted to see everything conclude normally, but it has allowed me to be able to tell some of these different stories that I wouldn't normally be able to or have the time to be able to tell.
0: Well, and if fans missed any of those stories, they can find them archived on the team's website, right?
1: Yeah, TampaBayLightning.com. Actually, I'm looking at it right now. If you go on the right hand side of the webpage, they're all kind of there in the column. Burns these weekend features. The last one I did was was on uh, Rick Peckham winning the yep. uh, the Foster Hewitt Award and just kind of his thoughts on you know whether he's worked his last game or not, what what he's thinking, if he's fine with how everything's ended, and if this has to be the end for him, if he's feeling good about that, and. Yeah, he's still he's he's ready for retirement, but it's interesting to me. And doing that story, like Rick would be retired fully right now if the season had ended the way it was supposed to end, and he's still kind of in this limbo too. Of you know, have I worked my last game? They're presuming he's going to work the round robin game and probably the the first round of the playoffs. But I mean, until something is definite, and he hasn't heard anything definite, he still has that that little bit of wonder too. So. Uh, that was fun to talk to him and and calling around and talking to you guys. I know I called you to, to get a quote for, for yeah. a, about Rick for actually for another story when we found out he had won the award and we wanted to get reaction from from different media people in the organization that he's worked with. So you know those have been some of the fun stories that I've been able to do during this pause just to you know stay in it and keep myself sane so that I'm ready to go once we uh, hit up with training camp on here hopefully on Monday.
0: Burnsy, I can't thank you enough for coming on and, and spending an hour with me. And we will talk soon down the road. Thanks for joining us.
1: Yeah, really looking forward to uh, to seeing you on Monday and just getting back into a regular flow and, and actually seeing some hockey here. And I enjoyed being on. Thanks for having me.
0: That was Brian Burns. That'll do it for this Thursday Power Lunch. Thanks to Brian. Thanks to Steve Versnick. I'm Dave Mishkin. Talk to you tomorrow, everybody.